When I understood the amount of money it took to get a customer in the door, when I really understood the sales process, um, because like I said before, sales interested me way more than marketing did. But when I understood that correlation between the dollar it took to get someone in the door and then keep them, that's when I really dug into, okay, how do you find a customer? Then how do you attach certain attributes to them and certain tags and naming conventions that really give you very detailed reporting that follows them through a sales process? And it's when I really saw the way that marketing was woven into every step of the sales process Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey, guys, it's Chris. Thank you for joining me today on the Fort. I'm super excited to have Megan Hodges with me today. I met Megan through her fiance, Raleigh, who's a friend of mine here in Fort Worth. And we got to talking about the business that she's recently founded and is the CEO of The Dowry, which is an online wedding registry site connecting local artisans from all over the country to engage couples that are tired of registering with big box retailers. Wouldn't we all love to stop buying wooden spoons from Pottery Barn for the people that we love? Megan, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. So before we get into just the dowry, can you give us like a two-minute Cliff Notes version of kind of your story and your life? Sure, absolutely. If I told the life story, that'd be kind of long. Okay. But the, the career story uh, is long enough. I like to say that I've sort of always been an entrepreneur, but I didn't realize it when it first started. Um, when I graduated from school, I went and worked for a big publicly traded company, it's actually the company that uh, manufactures and sells Sharpies. Wow. Massive conglomerate company that has tons of consumer uh, packaged goods. And I did that for a couple years and just really got my footing on what it meant to run a business, to have a sales team, to have a marketing team and operations, and just saw how this all sort of fit together. But one of the things that I realized in working for Sanford Brands was that um, there were inefficiencies even in this large organization. And so unbeknownst to me, I put together a little plan on one of the inefficiencies I saw and went to uh, my boss at the time and just said, hey, you know, I've noticed that there's, you know, some some issues going on over here. Here, Here's sort of a plan that I thought of that could, you know, help Sanford in the future. And I didn't think anything was going to happen about that. And it led me to create a new position within the company, actually a whole new team, and uh, promote myself um, within that organization. And looking back on that, I always say that, that was my first step into entrepreneurship, um, realizing that sort of creating something out of nothing can even happen in a large organization, even a publicly traded one. But like I said, I, I didn't know that at the time. And so I continued on with my career there at Sanford on the sales and marketing side, and then went on to work for a small privately held company, again, a manufacturing consumer goods company, more specialized on the sales team uh, than I was on the, on the marketing team. I was there for a while and really got bit by the, what I'm saying is true entrepreneurship bug yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and realized that not that I didn't want to work for somebody else, but again, it was more that I wanted to create something out of nothing or I saw these needs that 
um, the world had or different industries had. And that started my slow progression uh, away from the larger organizations and into the startup world. I, I worked for um, two co-founders out in Los Angeles for a startup company running their sales team, took them from pre-revenue, they were a Kickstarter company, to both a uh, brick-and-mortar sales and online sales internationally um, within a couple of years. And I then co-founded a company in Dallas called Rise. Um, we created a multi-sided um, marketplace. This was sort of my first step into a true technology company or yeah. where I was highly engaged and involved in the technical creation and process. Um, and and this, this platform connected regional business travelers in Texas, um, your markets, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas, um, to underutilized planes, okay. uh, private planes. And so the thought there from a business model perspective was if we could get these um, regional flyers who traveled frequently to pay a flat monthly fee, whether as an individual or their uh, organization, yeah. um, then they could fly for a certain amount of seats on these uh, on these aircraft and not have to deal with commercial flying. Yeah. And so I did that for a couple of years before we sold to Surveyor, which was um, a company doing the same thing out in California. So uh, it's still running underneath that Surveyor name. Yep. And this may show a little weakness in my in my career. I I left Rise with this feeling um, like I may have lost or um, not have had as sharp of the skills as individuals who are still working in corporate America. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a different rhythm and beat to a startup and oh, yeah. what you do and what your day to day looks like. And so after Rise, um, I took a position really on a strategy role within marketing for a company called RealPage in Dallas, a, a publicly traded company in Richardson that is a software company for real estate industry. I'm all about <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm sure you do. Oh yeah. Um so every you know, I mean I could go into detail there. i I'm I can let your listeners just know what it is, they can go check it out. But I, I helped build a marketing strategy plan for them. And so I worked with their product team, their their uh, engineers and their sales team to make sure that, um, you know, product launches or again, just the inefficiencies that were being, that were, that were happening within the organization that I could create a strategy plan to make sure that their products were hitting the market the right way and being sold the right way. And um, I did that for a year before I finally realized that I hadn't lost any of my skills, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that what I had learned and what I had done on the startup side um, translated very well to a large organization. But I did miss working for myself. And yeah. I personally was finally in a position in my career, and I think having enough years under my belt working, that I felt like it was time to actually um, start my own company. Yeah. Um, and that is what um, brought me to the dowry. So. Before we get to the dowry, and that's an awesome story, by the way, there's two kind of things that uh, I heard there. One, what was the thing that you brought to Sanford that was an inefficiency in the business? And were you someone unique to have brought that up? Like, do you feel like there's lots of people at big companies that notice inefficiencies, but maybe don't say anything? Absolutely. Yeah. So to answer the first part of your question, I mean, I, I was in my early 20s, yeah. you know, fresh out of school, green. Um, mm -hmm. So there was no experience. Um, and Sanford had created 
a, a program for recent graduates. They actually didn't even care if the graduates necessarily stayed on board. Uh, Newell Rubbermaid was the parent company. Okay. Uh, and they didn't care if these, these individuals stayed on board. Their goal was to invest through a training program. It was a two-year program that all these recent grads, I mean, th- they scoured universities. Right. Um, I don't think that they do this anymore. But so this two-year program um, was just really to train you in being a great salesperson and what it meant, being a great marketer and what it meant. But the thing that I saw that was missing was that they weren't training those individuals in the processes and the understanding that did march the same beat of Newell Rubbermaid or of Sanford Brands. And Got so it. they were doing a great job of of this whole training program just within the skills of what it took to be a, a great sales or marketing person, but not specifically for their organization. And so there was turnover there yep. um, or people didn't understand the way that that organization worked. And so I launched sort of a third arm of that training program and put together training packets, whether it was on, you know, true, a deep dive into product uh, knowledge or again, processes of what to do in certain aspects so that everybody was following sort of the same thing. So the second part of your question, um, again, goes back to the fact that I was green and knew nothing. And yeah. sometimes I think people who come into organizations, whether you're brand new, even if you've been working for a long time, or you are green and new and don't know anything about business, that's when innovation happens. Yeah. Um, it's when you see that the things that um, those who have been with an organization for a really long time are either blinded by or um, don't realize are, are, are happening right. the wrong way. So absolutely, I think anyone can jump in there and do it. So you're just young and green. <laughs> young like, and green. I'm going to change your whole sales strategy. <laughs> and I, I did it. Ex- yeah, exactly. I think I've had uh, the desire to say, I, I want to make everything and anything better. And I think I've been that way since I was a little girl. <laughs> I love it. The second is, uh, which I, I have a lot, and I feel like I have a lot in common with you there just from my interests, but aside from just building businesses, your whole career has been in marketing and sales and business. Like I think it's like my, my marketing professor told me is like, you don't need finance and accountants if you can't sell anything. Like you need to have that first. Uh, why have you gravitated towards that? Has it always come natural? And was there something that like pushed you into that world or is it just like natural? Man, you're asking the hard questions, huh? I'm telling you, man. <laughs> We're going to get a, a psychological here. I actually was a pre-law major in school and did not want to be in a courtroom all day. Yeah. And looking back on it, if I would have understood corporate law, I think, um, or just what you know an in-house attorney does, I think there either could have been a couple of different paths there. But when I graduated, I decided that law school was not what I needed to do. Yeah. And uh, actually, one of my mom's friends worked at Sanford and said, there's this training program. You should jump into this. And I look at that as sort of a fluke that um, I I did not I didn't step foot in the business school in college, um, not once. And so everything was on the job learning and training for me uh, was not from a true educational background. And I did not, I didn't know that that was the direction that I was going to, I was going to go. I was definitely drawn more to sales than to marketing. I could see maybe there's some parallels between being a lawyer and <laughs> being on the sales team, yeah. maybe. But um, I, I, I was very captivated by the idea of sales wasn't really about door-to-door sales, as you think of potentially from selling encyclopedias or something of that nature, um, when I really understood 
what a sales process was and the amount of work that went into understanding your customer and listening and being on their their side to see pain points that they could be you know dealing with um, that process of of starting um, a sales deal to actually closing a sales deal, regardless of the size of the revenue that was coming in the door, uh, was just really compelling to me. Yep. Um, and so th- that's really what qu- sort of kickstarted that path and saying, okay, I can keep with this yeah. for a while. I and like it's, this. It's the front of the business. I it's mean, the front it's, of the business. It's yeah. fun. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't, I even with the dowry, you know, I, I didn't bring on somebody to really manage my finances until I started getting revenue door, right? right? I mean, yeah. so that was the, that, you know, order of operations there, the marketing and the sales, and then bringing in that expert to, to help me run that side of it. You just don't have anything to count if there's no revenue coming <laughs> in the door. Right. Zeros and zeros. Zeros and zeros. <laughs> simple. Yeah. All right. So we're at real page and you realize maybe I do have the goods to start a business and I haven't lost it. Was there like a moment at real page that you that the light bulb went off and and how did the idea for the dowry kind of start formulating? Yeah, good question. I believe that starting a company doesn't mean that just your business acumen or the business side of your life is aligned and ready to go. It's so encompassing and takes so many hours out of your day and your life that um, the personal side of your life has got to be there too, whether that's financially or relationships or time or anything like that. And so I I knew that from previous experience that starting my own company was going to require all those fronts of my life to be on the same page and and, and in line um, in order for that to work. Um, One of those things is is often, and I'm not saying that once you start a company, it just yeah. <laughs> it, all, it all stays in line yeah. and it all works. Um, but it's easier to pull levers and triggers to uh, course correct. But I think when you're going to start a, a company, you do need to evaluate both sides of your life before you jump into it. Um, I, I don't have children of my own, um, but you know, I've oftentimes I've heard people say, "There's no not, no right time to have a child, right? Yeah. You know, you just kind of got to <laughs> jump in and do it." Yep. And so there's that side of it too. I mean, yeah. there's no perfection, for sure. Um, but it's just great to have um, at least some solid footing yep. um, before you jump into that. And so I felt like I was at that place in my life where both the personal and the business was aligned to actually start something on my own. And I did very early on in my career, and actually prior to starting my career, I've been someone who journals and takes notes um, on things around me. Um, And so (laughs) if anyone were to kind of thumb through my journal, I mean, there's everything from things that I think are great inventions, which are probably horrible, (laughs) um, to things that I've just witnessed, you know, in and out of, uh, of the day. And so the dowry was something that I had written down years ago. I was engaged uh, and married uh, previous to being engaged to Raleigh. And it was a frustration that I had back in 2007 that I couldn't find one consolidated platform to register for unique handmade goods. Um, yep. And I do think I've heard this said over and over again, and it seems to ring true that really good startups sort of stem from uh, an issue or frustration that happens in the real world, right? Yep. So um, it, it did come from something very personal like that for me. And I thought, okay, if I'm feeling this way, others out there must be feeling the same way too. Yep. So you have this in your journal. You probably keep coming back to it. 
adding more notes to it. That's kind of the creams rising to the mm-hmm. top. Did you talk to a bunch of folks kind of once your mind had kind of, all right, I think this is it. How much time did you spend like validating that you weren't the only one kind of feeling this way? A ton. A ton. ton. Back to sales and everything, knowing (laughs) your customer, the whole deal. The whole deal. So the dowry launched to the public in January of of this year, 2020. But last year, uh, January of 2019, I'm still with RealPage. But realizing that this is something that can take place. I don't know if I recommend this for a bunch of other people, but while I was working full time, I was spending my nights and weekends uh, really deep diving into the industry, Um, deep diving into the competition that is out there, really assessing um, what the market looks like. Um, You know, could I have a piece of that market? Um, If so, what does that piece look like? And then who are those customers within that piece of the market? And so, again, the business plan, which sounds so cliche, but is extremely vital. It was not 100% perfect, but I took eight months before quitting RealPage. I didn't quit RealPage until August of last year. Yep. And that entire eight months was spent um, really working on this plan. Uh, yes, consulting mentors. Yep. That was something I realized very on in my career uh, that it was vital to have. And so talking to a lot of different people, yep. ba- bouncing different things off of them and um, getting a lot of a great feedback. I mean, even the name, The Dowry, I I paid a company to do some market research on a small segment of individuals, even to see, I knew that the name had negative connotations. And so Why? what was I going to have to overcome uh, as, as a business owner? The, the Dowry as it stands today is... Um, the gift or the money that's given to uh, the husband or the fiance and his family um, in order or in exchange for a bride. Oh, wow. um, and so there are 39,000 girls sold, I'm using air quotes now, into marriage of all different ages um, because of their dowries. Um, it's mainly happening in, in Asia and in India, but it's still it's happening in the US. Yep. US. And, and so yeah, I did a lot of research to say, okay, if I'm going to be strong-headed yeah. <laughs> with this name, then I need to make sure that I know how to back it up and have the marketing plan in place to overcome um, some of the negative press that may come with a name like that. Well, I'm not that smart. And when I first heard the dowry, I was like, oh, this is a great name. Well, but I had no yeah. idea like that it had <laughs> negative connotation. Yeah. And I wrote this down and we kind of jumped a little bit in front of it. Uh, but now we're going to maybe wrap this up is so the mission of the dowry challenges historical dowry practices by bringing exceptional artisans and their collections into the homes of newly engaged couples through curated gift registry while generating awareness of the ongoing abuse created by conventional dowry practices you then have a quote i think at the bottom of your homepage that says uh, worldwide 39,000 girls wed every day with little or no choice in when or whom they will marry and I hate to admit this, but one of the shows I'm watching on A&E right now, just total junk, is uh, Escaping Polygamy, if you've seen it. I've not seen that. But, but the I, forced marriages is right. like the hot topic of everything. Sure. Nobody on the podcast judge me. Uh, it's terrible <laughs> TV, but it's good. Uh, what are you doing there? Yeah, so it's an interesting, I almost want to like jump back a second, because the idea of like conscious capitalism yep. and the whole giving back piece is a 
buzzword and yeah. it's been a buzzword for a while. And it made me even sort of question myself on, you know, was I being genuine enough to have this as a part of what I was doing with my business? Yeah. Um, I just got done listening to podcasts with Blake McCoskey, you know, that kind of started that whole thing. And so I sort of checked myself uh, and made sure that my life represented my desire for women to be able to have those kind of choices and yeah. that I'd already been, you know, doing things previously to help women, whether there's some organizations that I've, you know, spent some time just giving my own time to, um, as, as well as money and things of that nature. And so I, I felt aligned with, with this idea of launching this mission with the dowry yep. and it was further, uh, solidified when my sister got engaged to a first generation uh, Indian. She met him while they were in Austin, but his parents are still back in India. And I was able to have even deeper dialogue around what was happening and sort of get a firsthand account of it. So it didn't yeah. seem as distant to me. It actually felt more personal um, than it did just some random idea that I was going to attach to the dowry. And when I started really deep diving into the dowry last year and building this business plan, I did have that aha moment yep. of here was a business plan and idea that I felt very convicted and strong by. And then here is a a world social issue that I was feeling convicted by. And they seem to have something in common, which was weddings. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's sort of, it, it came together nicely. And then there's the uphill battle. So right. as soon as that felt great and I had this aha moment, um, it's how do you do that, right. um, especially with an organization who at that point in time was pre-revenue. Yeah. Um, what do you do? And so it's why I've decided to start with the idea that it's just bringing awareness first yep. with the platforms that I have. Yep. Um, my end goal is that I'm creating other outlets for giving time and money to help this cause yep. and bring awareness to it. But right now, it's just utilizing my social platforms. It's doing things like this with the podcast. Yep. Um, it's actually what made me stamp the final, you know, brand document with the name, the dowry, because I can't shy away from that. When right. your company is named um, the very uh, issue, uh, yeah. then um, then I have to address it. And there's already been, you know, I we have artists emailing in all the time. We're doing a lot of artist outreach to get them on the site. And there are artists that have emailed in and said, I just don't feel right about the name of your website in order to be an artist on there. Immediately, that gives myself as well as those who are working with me the opportunity to respond back with what we're doing. And that that right there is exactly why we're doing what we're doing. I'm right. saying you know, you didn't have an option as an artist, but to come back to me and say, man, I don't like the name of this. And yep. then it gives me a platform to speak about it. So, so far it's working. <laughs> so That's we'll awesome. See. Yeah. That's super cool. Thanks. Yeah. I think the, I think I love that you said that at step one is let's just bring awareness to it. You see so many of these businesses with like no revenue start with like, we're going to give something for free for everything we sell. And they realize really quick, like all their cash is going out the door and you can bring a lot more value to things just in getting a lot of exposure than necessarily, you know, donating a dollar for everything sold. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not a nonprofit, right? right? So knowing how to run a business and knowing what your margins are and understanding, you know, that that is there's a bottom line there. For sure. Then I'm building that into that business plan. I'll tell you what, 
before I started taking notes for this podcast, I had no idea that that was a problem in the world. There you go. Now I do. Now you do. So in pure startup fashion, we're going to now get into the dowry and how we built it. And uh, I always say we, we're, we're all in this together on the podcast. <laughs> you now are. Yeah, here we are. Here we you are. weren't before today, but I'll give you that. I'm in it, baby. <laughs> I'll take one step back. So we're in the wedding industry. Mm-hmm. The, the the elephant in the room is there's, uh, you know, the COVID-19 and there's sure. been a halt on, on big social gatherings mm-hmm. and weddings, which I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, how we're working through that. But you are in Fort Worth. And hopefully this is a, a similar to Apple or Amazon story. You are working in the back of your house where all great businesses start. <laughs> where did you read that? I know. <laughs> How did you get that information? <laughs> Somebody told me, uh-huh. <laughs> um, which I think is awesome. It's super resourceful. I've met so many people that, again, living on a, a budget and being resourceful with your your capital early on, there's no reason to have a fan- fancy office. But um, let's just start out by... Um, you kind of launch and you launched when, like when were you officially out to the world? Yeah. So in phases. Okay. So the website was up and running by, so I, I, I left real page in, in August. I had the site up and running by October. Okay. Um, I then took my marketing plan and, and started a piece of it. And then I launched just to friends and family uh, right after Thanksgiving. Okay. Um, and I was using that as a test case. Okay. Just to make sure that first and foremost, it operationally worked, right? Yeah. I wanted to make some, sure that somebody could purchase something, um, that it would get delivered to them, yeah. right? <laughs> and so it launched to, you know, a, a few thousand people, it yep. was sort of the friends of the friends. And I let it run like that through the end of the year yep. um, and and just make sure that that everything was good to go. And and then in January is when I really took the marketing plan and started spending dollars yep. um, towards bridal fairs and you know digital paid advertising, things of that nature. So January of this year is when when I say that we truly launched, you know, to the public and and you've already kind of hinted at this within three months, um, a worldwide pandemic hit. And one of the things that, you know, you probably you know didn't know is that I launched in January to uh, the public with the intent of starting my friends and family raise. I have that in, in here in, in March three days um, before COVID hit. So, you know, there's, you, you, you could back into the, the pandemic affecting a, a slew of different areas of the business. Yep. One of the things that I've started to correct people on is that, yes, I'm in the wedding industry. I kind of view the wedding industry as the overarching umbrella uh, uh, of the industry, but I am truly in what I call the wedding gift giving yep. portion of the industry, which is a $19 billion um, Mark, yeah, right. I mean, that's that's. You don't enough. have to be at the wedding to get the gift. You can, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't play in the same piece of the wedding industry as the venue or the photographer or the florist. I am truly in the wedding gift giving industry, which is, is is a separate market. Um, but it is still contingent upon people falling in love and getting married. Um, but it's not as contingent on the big gathering. Which is which? Which is a benefit 
um, it's, it's a benefit to the wedding gift giving industry as a whole. Yeah. Um, I've seen a couple of positives, which I can talk about in a, in a second for that sector of the wedding industry. But for me personally, my business model took into effect that launching the business in January to consumers meant that I was not going to see revenue until August or September of this year. Right. So the, um, and, and that's because brides and grooms register seven to eight months in advance prior right. to the wedding. And so there's that delay. Um, you can kind of see the revenue that's that's to come. Yeah. And so even though I was marketing in Q1 and Q2, that was for weddings that were to happen in Q3. And so I didn't miss out on the revenue of the early COVID months. I yep. didn't miss out on on March till now yep. um, because those were zeros on yeah. my, <laughs> those are still zero months for you me. You planned them perfectly. <laughs> I planned it perfectly, yep. right. So th- that's that's been an interesting thing. And, and so I had that, you know, August was going to be the month where uh, we would start to see revenue come in from registries and it started mid-July. Um, Are people buying? I'm so glad you brought that up. I didn't really think about that. The wedding actually doesn't have to happen to still give somebody a wedding gift. Right. Are people actually spending more on gifts because they're not spending on a rental tux or traveling to the wedding? And they've not sympathy, but it's like, I'm not spending on anything else. I'm just going to give you a nicer gift and I'm going to make sure you at least get the gift. Yes. I, I've seen that personally on the site and I've also read you know, elsewhere from competition that they are seeing the same thing. Yep. Um, it's not 100%. You For know, sure. But yes, there's been an uptick in the average gift giving size. Wow. Um, so it was right over, it averaged a right over $100 per gift. And it's pushing closer to around $200 per wow. gift that people are giving. So it is kind of interesting. Yep. Um, I was asked recently on just the etiquette around you know, what do you do for someone who's postponing their wedding or um, got engaged or married at the courthouse and didn't have the wedding, but you are still close to them? And of course, as the business owner, I'm like, yes, you still send the gift, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that's, um, there's, there's, there's that side of it too, that you may not even have a wedding to attend, let alone, yeah, maybe you did get the invitation, but you're not going yep. and then you would still give, give the gift. Every now and again, there's that distant uncle wedding that you wish you could probably just send a nicer <laughs> gift than have to actually go to go. Uh, yes. I like it. Stepping back a little bit. So you built the website kind of Q3 of 2019. How'd you build it? Did you know somebody? Is it Shopify? Like how'd you great build question. it? Yep. Yeah, that's a great question. My take on all of this is that you test it until you prove it right. and that it works. And so it's a, it's a combination of both. I think it's fantastic what technology has done to the individual entrepreneur these days. Anyone could do this is kind of what I want to say, even though I know that there's a lot more that goes into it than saying anyone can do it. But yes, I utilize um, Shopify as as the basis for the backbone of the technology. But I did use, and again, another platform that sources, um, you know, individual contracted developers, both, you know, front end and back end developers that I pinged to do um, some additional work yep. on the site that Shopify couldn't do more from a, a UX and design perspective. And then in order to add the um, registry component to it, uh, you know, Shopify lets you connect to apps. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, a ton of different apps oh, yeah. that you can, you can connect into to create that actual 
you know, registry side, because technically the dowry is an e-commerce platform. For sure. You can just go buy stuff not specific um, for a registry. And so I added that component onto it. And then, it, you know, as a sales and marketer, I was very quick to make sure that, you know, I had a contact management system that was integrated with it and my email marketing piece that was integrated into it. And so those platforms are all connected together. It is interesting because again, sort of circles back to what we talked about, you know, at the beginning of the podcast that out of frustration is kind of when you see, you know, other things that um, need to be created and already there are holes in these white labeled platform technologies yeah. that don't fulfill. And it's really on the fulfillment and shipping and operations side of my business yep. um, that I'm realizing, okay, this only works so far. Right. Um, I'm, I'm drop shipping product from these artists, you know, directly to the end consumer. And there are a lot of moving pieces and parts there. For sure. And so the inefficiencies that um, that these just out-of-the-box platforms um, have yeah. won't suffice forever. Yep. But until I prove out the model and make sure that there's a, a true business here, yep. it's the most cost-effective way to launch them. For sure. It's like yeah. the logistic. I mean, it's you're as much a logistics company as you are in e-commerce. You probably feel like some days you're more a logistics company than you are in e-commerce. Absolutely. Company. You build the website, but then you got to have something to sell on it. So during that whole time, were you already starting to reach out to artisans? Did you already have them lined up? Walk me through maybe part one of the question is like, how did you get people ready to go before you even had something going versus today? You, I've been on your website for the last two days checking it out. You have a ton of amazing I didn't see products. your order come through. I, there's, I haven't been invited to a wedding. I told Aunt, Aunt, Aunt uh, what's her name? I'm, I'm not coming, but I'm sending a nice gift. Okay. Um, and my wife knows about the business, so we, we will be ordering. I, we actually have r men seem to buy more on the site than women do. I am Is the, that not crazy? It, it's hilarious. I'm the worst wedding gift giver. I, get, I go on like, I'm like, oh, wait, the wedding's in like two weeks. So I got to get this there. I get like the one wooden spoon that is left, <laughs> like a blender. Like I don't eat, I just click on like the first three things that equal a hundred dollars. And I'm like, they wanted it, whatever. <laughs> and what's amazing to me for the males and Raleigh knows this is Michael. My wife was like, well, what do you, what do you want? I was on like Pottery Barn. I was like, nothing here. William <laughs> Sonoma, zero here. Mm -hmm. I was like, can we get, is there a registry at Edwin Watts or <laughs> like some golf shop so I can actually use the things that I'm being given? We have so many things in our house that um, they're nice on Williams-Sonoma, but they're right. not really functional. Yeah, they're not functional. Or, we, don't we, we don't use them. Absolutely. We have China that we've now been married seven years and Michael keeps, or six years and Michael keeps saying like, we're going to use this for Thanksgiving one day. Yeah. And I'm like, no, we're not. No, we're not. Because we're not going to like. We can't put it in the dishwasher. Yeah. We don't want to hand wash everything. It'll yeah, sit there forever. It'll sit there forever. <laughs> <sighs> so part one of the question, how were you already getting artisans on the business when you had nothing? And then maybe part two is now that you have something, how are you getting people on? Is it more inbound? Are you still reaching out to folks? Are these people all over the country? Are they local? Or yeah, Tell me all about that, that. That's a great question. Um, it was definitely... Um, one of the hardest sales sales jobs I've I've had to do prior to the site launching. I mean, I was selling an idea that didn't exist to these people, yep. and they 
had some bad taste in their mouth from working with Amazon and Etsy. And, you know, they they don't feel business savvy. They're creators um, in, a, in a different way. And so it, well, I got a lot of no's. I got yeah. a lot of no's. I, I, Why? Because um, they just thought you wouldn't be a, like it wouldn't, the, the process wouldn't be good or? So I, I, so I did have a process in reaching out to them and I did have um, sales documents that I gave them that explained, you know, the way that my artist program was going to be set up and the way they were going to get paid and the ease of X, Y, and Z, right, of, of doing the operational piece. But again, this kind of goes back to knowing your customer. And right. I've got customers on, on both sides of the business. And they are so driven by design and beauty and aesthetic things that the inability for them, they couldn't see anything. Right. And so that almost mattered more to them than the fact that I was going to ACH their account every Friday you know, pr- prior to them shipping and after, you know, I, I laid that all out to them. But what mattered more to them was the look and feel of where these things that they had spent potentially weeks um, creating yep. were going to live and be sold. Right. So that was that was the hard part there. Yep. Um, Did you show them wireframes or something? So when I got when we got there, when right? You got to, wire, yeah, <laughs> so, you gotta get to wireframes. Right. You gotta, you gotta yep. get to wireframes even. Um, but yes, I I PDF'd you know, the first um, mocked up homepage and was sending them these PDFs. And we launched with 30, uh, we launched with under 30 artisans okay. on the site. And at that point in time, I would say that my, uh, the, the process of bringing them on, I was a little bit more liberal with and, yeah. and was accepting of a little bit more just to have a full homepage. Yeah. Um, the, the, the requirements were definitely that they were American made. Yes, they're from coast to coast. So the artisans are all across the United States, uh, but they're right now it's not international. So it's all American made. Yep. It's all handmade. And it has to fit within one of my houseware categories, okay. bed, bath, kitchen, decor. Um, and so as long as they met those parameters, then I was accepting them. As soon as the site launched, and that was all outreach. As soon as the site launched, there is you know an artist interest form on, on the homepage we did start getting inquir- inquiries the opposite direction of just, oh, hey, we're interested in, in being on your on your site. Yep. And so now it's it's split. We still, of course, are doing outreach to artisans, um, but the, we also have artisans that are coming in the door. Um, we are constantly adding um, new artists. And so just as there's the fulfillment side of shipping orders, which you know takes forever, um, there is the operational process of you know onboarding an artist and, you know, keeping them engaged and working with them on that side of the business too. So. Do you remember who you're, you don't have to say on the podcast, mm-hmm. but do you remember the moment that the first artisan was like, I'm in? I'll never forget it. Really? Yes. That's pretty I know, cool day. I know who it is. Yeah. And do they know it was them? No, okay. they don't. Well, when you great, sell for a billion question. dollars, you can. <laughs> I will say it then. <laughs> yes. Were they easy? Sometimes the first, like the first person to say yes is the person that's like, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. You know what? So I'm probably going to divulge, you know, too much information. So yes. Yeah. The person who. Divulge as much as you want. Yeah. So the, the person who was, who came on first was, was definitely an easier sell, um, a sh- very short sell cycle and was excited to have another place to sell. Didn't ask a lot of questions. Yep. Um, sort of signed on for everything I said. There was, you know, no, didn't want to negotiate anything. And even though right now my artists, I'm hovering around like a 
an 85%. So about 85% of the artists have received at least one order from me. Right. So there are some artists on the site who have not, this artist still has not received an order. And what's interesting is, you know, cause I'm just monitoring all of the, that reporting and data and, um, and the product that um, she has is absolutely beautiful and, and gorgeous. But you just kind of wonder, you know, repositioning things on the site and all that sort of thing. But I'll never forget, you know, who it is. And she said, um, yep. and she said yes. <laughs> um, how do you find artisans? Is there like a database of artisans or you're just kind of scouring the web or how do you find these people? That's a good question. So because I've been thinking of this idea for a really long time in my journal, I had a list of artisans in my, the notes section of my phone. I've really been keeping um, a, a list of, uh, of people that I could start with. So there was, you know, a couple hundred in there. But yes, it is scouring um, social media. Um, there are, you, obviously, there's the typical sort of art fairs that you think about, you know, Fort Worth does their one downtown. But there are some really cool sort of makers fairs that happen um, in, you know, New York and, and um, on the West Coast. And there's some really cool events like that that you can go to where they kind of come together. Yep. Um, and so we attend those fairs as well. And then it's a really tight knit community, more so than I even realized. Right. And so they talk um, and they share they share news. You know, one of the things in my business plan when I first started um, was already thinking about like we had talked about sort of my competition and sort of what's an end game for the dowry and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, aside from all the normal brick and mortar retailers that are doing registries, there's Zola and the Knot, which are kind of the behemoths in the industry. Um, but as I started to do research, something popped up that I didn't even know existed, which is why it's great to do all that research before starting your business. And it was a company out in California called Fair. Okay. And they are essentially the same platform that I am, except for they're a wholesale business that has aggregated all these artisans oh, wow. to sell to small brick and mortar. Yep. Um, and so they're dealing with the B2B business um, where I'm dealing with the uh, direct to consumer, but our back end and um, customer base on the artisan side is very similar. Yep. They're broader than the housewares sector. And so it's been interesting to kind of watch them and see what they're doing. Um, it's an, another play of going in and seeing, okay, you know, what kind of housewares artisans are they looking right. at and who they acquired? So could you go to FAIR and just say, can you have some of your clients? put their product on on ours since they're a wholesaler. So I could I could probably go to Fair and and purchase from from yeah. Fair. Um it was interesting. I'm trying to think I remember getting denied from them and I have I've not gone back over there in a in a while, but I definitely the business model that I have set up is definitely dealing with the artisans directly, obviously cutting out um you know Fair is structured like an Amazon handmade or an Etsy where there's that um, you know, percentage fee that's taken off for the yeah. artisan. And and so I don't want to have any middlemen there from a margin perspective, whether it's for the artisan or for myself. Yep. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely one of the reasons why I've not gone that direction. Um, it works for the brick and mortar mom and pop who's holding inventory. Okay. Um, you know, Fair wants to sell to me in bulk. Yep. And and I don't I don't house any inventory. I'm not looking the back for house is space. getting already full enough. <laughs> yes, we don't need to turn it into a warehouse. exactly whiteboards everywhere on the wall. Yeah, <laughs> you mentioned something when you were when we were first chatting. You said when early on I was a little more liberal about onboarding. Now you probably have a little more. So maybe 
my question is, um, what are you doing differently now? And kind of what's your criteria for an artisan? I'm assuming that not everybody that makes art can sell on the dowry. That's a really good question. And that, and that gets into, you know, such an interesting area because, you know, it's easy to qualify and disqualify someone on a black and white, you know, issue. Yeah. Is it American made? Is it handmade? But when you start talking about, you know, the way something looks or your opinion on their product, it, that gray area, it just gets a, a lot harder. Yep. Um, so what happens is, regardless of whether we do the outreach or if someone comes into us, they fill in an artist interest form okay. and immediately they receive a link. We've, we've, we've not looked at the person whatsoever, but they receive a link for an application. Got it. Um, and so what's nice about that is they fill in quite a bit of information there for us that allows us to then sort of scope them out. And I have, you know, we've got, I know that's canned responses, but, you know, it's very automated. Um, you know, I do... Ashley is managing, I've got, she's managing my artist program. And, and so she's making sure that, you know, what's happening with each of these artists and moving them through the process is the right thing. Um, but we're very deliberate in the way that we respond to them based off of certain things still. I don't want to get into some sort of legal battle yeah. <laughs> just early on with anybody, not that it would ever go that direction. Um, sure. But, but we have turned people down. We have said no. Um, we want to not just be a site full of product um, that isn't curated. So we yeah. take the curation very seriously. Um, we have um, a handful of different um, interior designers who've helped us curate different design styles to understand how these artisan products can come together. And so having quote unquote experts who are helping to kind of guide us down that path sort of gives us this um, ability to say no to some sort of tchotchke piece right. or and no offense to this but you know a mom in her garage who's just throwing on the wheel some pottery that right. you know it has not taken the time to really think through her collection it or can't be done at scale and, and all of that yep. all of that so yeah it's 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 that's a work in progress still. for sure yeah i'm sure it'll always be true um do most of your artisans are they selling on etsy and probably on their own website and are they on lots of platforms a few that is You're smiling. Yeah, I'm smiling because that's such an interesting thing that um, for all the planning I did beforehand, I didn't know until I got into the thick of it, the breadth of the different kind of artists that was going to be out there. Right. Yeah. So they're they're the the artists who sure have a website, but it's just, oh, my gosh, you cringe to look at it. And I don't it may be a website, but it's not even an e-commerce platform. So not even selling on it right. all the way to some textile artists and some ceramicists that have a studio with 12 um, artists in there who are all designing towards the same collection. And they've got more of a business you know, process in place with their own e-commerce site. And so the, just that, that kind of breadth of customer on that side is such an interesting dichotomy. And so, yes, there are definitely artists that have their own website. Um, I would say the majority of them do. But even fewer are e-commerce sites and even less than that have a registry. They are oftentimes telling me that they get people who want to register for their product and they don't know where to send them. Yep. Um, and so that's nice. They get their own page on my site that's just dedicated to them specifically. And then, again, I don't know if I want to put a percentage on this, but I would say at least 50% are either still on Amazon Handmade or Etsy or had been at one time. Um, you know, they continue to raise their fees. I definitely am listening to 
you know, these sort of horror stories that they say that they're, um, you know, spending all this time getting product up on this site, just be lost in the, you know, behemoth that they both are. And so, um, you know, how do you find something like that versus, you know, something else that Amazon's? That's a weird question. I was just thinking about it, but the majority of people that send gifts through a registry are invited to the wedding, right? Like if Mm -hmm. Kim Kardashian registered her wedding on your website, (laughs) I would imagine she'd have like millions of fans still (laughs) buying her gifts. Um, it's a weird question, it but like, are, question. <laughs> are the majority of people invited to the wedding or does, do people kind of come in even if they weren't invited and that's, how does that work? That's a great question. So, um, I allow my couples to either, um, password protect their registries. Yep. So if Kim was on my site, she'd probably password, password protect hers. Um, but you don't have to, it can be open so that anyone could go and search and purchase. Um, I don't have the answer for you on that because I don't know you know, the people who are purchasing off of the registries, you know, so-and-so right. bought off of um, Mary's registry. I see that happen, but I don't know whether she was invited or Got not. It. Um, what is interesting is that I, I, I am able to track where that customer came from. And yep. so I've been able to watch my referral sources come in from specific wedding register or w- w- wedding websites. Yep. Um, and so that I do know. So, you know, my assumption would be that, yes, that that was a guest. Uh, and you have kind wedding. of you have kind of built a network effects. If I go buy a gift for somebody on the dowry and then I get married a few years later, I'm already a cu- I'm, I'm, I'm new. I'm the other side of the customer now. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's been, um, you know, there are articles out there around, you know, why it's hard to market and sell in the wedding industry. Um, and this could cross over for a bunch of different industries where it is um, it, it's an industry where you have to acquire a new customer every year. So instead of that reoccurring revenue yep. or the customer who comes back, you know, every couple of quarters, what's tough about the wedding registry when you think about it from a marketing spend perspective is that as soon as she's married, I'm next year I've got to go out and get her plus 10 more, right? right. So that, and, and there's a, a lot of industries like that that are based on an event date that require you to set up your marketing plan quite differently. Yep. Um, but where this is slightly different than that, unlike a photography business or a, a venue business, is that as soon as her event date has passed, um, she changes in our contact data system from being a, a bride to an e-commerce or informational customer yep. where I'm, I don't lose her. I just change the way I'm talking to her right. and the way that I keep her involved and wanting to keep coming back and purchasing. And the same thing would happen for a guest. You know, you're a guest and you're purchasing off of a registry, but then I make sure to stay in touch with you through other e-commerce pieces or content from the blog that would want you to come back and purchase that knife set for your dad for Father's Day or whatever that additional thing may be. And so that's ultimately that goal, you know, even further on down the road of thinking outside the box that, you know, a wedding is a life event. Um, As a retailer, I could think of a handful of other life events that if I'm staying in touch with them the right way, when they decide to have a baby and I decide to add that piece to my registry, Uh, um, I've I've kept her around longer. Um, So that's sort of the... You know, initially people like to ask about that long tail and, and, you know, my marketing costs going down and, you know, the spend for bringing somebody in. And so I think it may take 
potentially longer on the front end, maybe. But I think that you can have that reoccurring customer in this industry. I love it. Pivoting just a little bit, uh, you mentioned that you started raising capital in March, three days before COVID hit. So you were ready to hit the trail. You probably had a lot of meetings set in person. Maybe walk me through the first couple of weeks of March uh, and then how you pivoted to continue to raise capital without the traditional way of doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, the when I say that I started to my friends and family around, you know, three days before COVID hit, that was after a few months of preparing for that day, yeah. right? So, um, you know, there was a day where I sat down and said, okay, this investor deck that I've worked on for two and a half, three months, um, or these financial models that I've literally poured over day in and day out, um, there was a day where I sat down at the computer with both those things and a drafted email and sent it out to, you know, people that I was intending to send that out to. And so when I say that I launched it, you know, three days before COVID hit, that's the date I'm talking about. Yep. Um, so all that planning had already happened. Um, all that work. I mean, I, you know, I, I paid someone to put together a beautiful deck, right? Yep. So, I mean, there was even an ex, you know expense pieces um, that that were put into that. And so, yeah, it was it was like a punch in the gut. Yep. Um, you know, y- you want to have investors that you hope aren't going to be massively impacted by a pandemic. Um, uh-huh. But there's just uncertainty and you just don't know what's going to happen and um, any impact at whatever, you know, wealth state you're at is still going to be an impact and a hurt. And then the emails were already sent. And so those first few days, it was, okay, what different courses of action do we have? Um, And so, you know, you said I probably had a bunch of face-to-face meetings set. Um, I wasn't... that. I was just sending the emails to kind of really get that set up. And so I knew, though, that those face-to-face meetings weren't going to happen, um, or at least not for a few months. And so what could I do to either keep people interested enough to invest or keep them interested enough that I could um, ping them (laughs) when when life seemed to get a little bit more back to normal? And so there were a couple of things that I did. One, I immediately um, recalculated the model off of a couple of different tiered um, raise amounts. Um, So what would happen if I, you know, I'm just calling good, better, best. So if I only raised good, what what did that look like for the business? And how could I share that with potentially interested uh, parties? Um, If I was able to raise, um, you know, better, what did that look like? And then, you know, best was sort of that original amount. It's so that I could answer questions and let them know that, not only was I in tune with what could be impacting them and their business and their families, but then what did that look like in impacting my business and, and raising those different uh, dollar amounts? And then the other thing that I did, um, which I'm kind of laughing about now, but I've I got great. It. You did? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The Vimeo? See, you should have told me that before I started in I on this. I couldn't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yes. I laugh about it I now. Love it. I loved it. <laughs> it was, um, I, ha- it was not my idea. Yeah. Um, uh, I had, I had actually a high school friend of mine who was also raising money for a business of his that, um, actually R- Raleigh was working on. And I happened to walk into his office and he said, watch this video, you know, COVID hit, he's actually doing his fundraising video and, um, and keeping up with people that way where he can actually you know, we can hear from him. And so, yes, I sat down and, um, you know, I practiced for weeks and I wrote a script, and, but in one take, um, really walked through the investor deck 
um, because I couldn't meet with people face to face. I thought, oh, this is a great idea yep. um, in another way. It, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, how does that change our future, right? I'm, I'm sure you've probably asked a lot of different guests about that. Like, okay, so what does business look like in the future? How does sure. raising money change now in the future? Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, those are, those are two things that stand out, but yeah. <laughs> I kind of changed. It's been interesting though, in the last few weeks that, though, you know, we're obviously still wearing masks, but people are willing to, you know, meet yep. again face to face. And so uh, that's been very reassuring. We talked to our property manager that manages some of our multifamily units. And he said the last two weeks traffic for multifamily tours has tripled out of basically nowhere. There's, there's no wow. like leading indicator. Huh. And it's basically, they're not doing virtual tours anymore. It is just like a wave of traffic. Interesting. And I'm kind of feeling and seeing that in lots of places. Yeah. Um, I think we talked before I was in Florida with my buddy Brian mm-hmm. and his, his family and just like depends on where you are, but there's a lot of parts of the world that are starting to move around again. And it's another question I had for you you're kind of a leading indicator to our when our weddings mm-hmm. going to start happening again and are you seeing them actually happening now are they smaller like what's your take on where we'll be maybe a year from now are we going to be this is old news we have short memories and we're back or what do you think yeah that's the same sort of like energy i felt over the last couple of weeks you know raising money aside the uptick in registries and so it was interesting when covid hit one of the things, one of the data pieces that I pull out of my system um, from the uh, amount of brides that I have in there is their is their event date, and so I I kind of segment it into over eight months away and under eight months away because for me it's based on when people buy gifts, and I watched as um, the majority of the brides in my contact database, most of their weddings were in 2020, and. I think it was towards the end of March when I saw that it was, you know, 50% still had them in 2020, 40% had moved them to 2021. And there was a small percentage either didn't have the date or had gone ahead and scheduled something for 2022. And that was uh, tough to kind of see happen. And now when I go and look at that data, everybody's sort of selected a date. There's not this, you know, kind of out there trying to figure it out piece. Um, but also the weddings that are happening in 2020 are like are actually taking place. Like the, I'm seeing that these weddings are actually happening. Do I know if they're on a smaller scale? I don't know that per se, because like I said, I don't yeah. know how many guests are, are attending. attending. Um, but I've done outreach and asked some of those questions and people are saying, yes, I'm getting married in my backyard or yes, it's a smaller um, wedding size or I'm doing a small wedding right now. But we are we weren't able to get rid of all of our vendors for next year. And so we're actually having the big bash, you know, next year. But we didn't want to postpone the actual marriage. And so do I think that there's going to be a change going forward? I do what I'm reading and what I'm seeing from people rescheduling their weddings and the way they're sort of splitting up this what they're calling mini monies into their larger event next year. I think we're still going to feel the backlog of this. Um, There were a lot of vendors who asked for their engaged couples this year to push their weddings, um, to free up dates because space is limited. Um, I'm also seeing that wedding dates are happening on Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays, um, not just your typical Saturday um, wedding. So 
just because it's 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 contingent on an actual physical location, I don't think that we're just going to get back to normal next year. I think that there's going to be this sort of backlog of, you know, oh, I, I don't want to get married on a Wednesday. I'm just going to, you know, yeah. keep trying to figure this out. So I think we've got kind of a little uphill battle with um, that for the next But I think years. it's, I mean, I think we've probably had three or four weddings we were going to attend canceled and they all did what you said. They had like a mini money mm-hmm. and then next year's the, the party, which to be honest with you, doesn't sounds like it should always be that way. It's like <laughs> skip the church and <laughs> go, go to the party. To the party. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll be interesting to see, you know, do people buy gifts for the for this and for that? I mean, for there's, sure. there's some things like that too that'll be interesting to kind of see for what sure. happens. For sure. Um so back to kind of sales and marketing. And you've just said a lot of interesting things since just we've been talking, just little things like, you know, when you know my bride has her wedding, then she gets converted to this type of customer and this you know, their names come in and they're in this email distribution list. Um, maybe for like a listener, you're clearly an expert kind of marketer, sales, digital marketing. Um, I'll, I'll ask like maybe a little few series of questions, but did you just learn on the job or like who taught you how to digitally market and set up these CRM platforms and, you know, this converts to that and this person gets that message? Like, how'd you learn all that? It definitely was on the job. Where? Um, or at multiple companies? I, and I could be wrong on this, but I didn't feel the influx of the amount of tools that are out there until really this sort of the second half of my career. I mean, it was like we had SAP, you know, there was just kind of this big yep. systems where you had whole teams that were managing the way that you dealt with with your your contacts and operations and all of that. And so these smaller platforms, I feel, you know, 2011-ish, I feel like it really started to just kind of pro- proliferate around small businesses, medium businesses, where you you could just take these tools like we've talked about right. and, um, and figure out how to piecemeal stuff together. I am by nature just a learner. Yep. I love to read and learn and I'm drawn to technology. Um, and so, you know, I, I am not only reading just business books or books for fun, but staying up to date with, um, you know, business magazines and um, and articles that come out around technology. That just naturally is interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Even if it's a a platform that even doesn't pertain to the dowry, I like to know about it um, and kind of read up on it. You know, like what is the what are the latest things that are happening in fulfillment and yeah. shipping and warehousing? I mean, it, that probably sounds boring <laughs> to maybe a lot of people, but to me, that's just really fascinating. Yep. And so, so that kind of keeps me on the edge of sort of what is out there. Yep. Um, and I still feel behind. Yeah. Um, I I feel like I am oftentimes learning some of the latest and greatest things from people who are way younger than me yeah. um, and, and way more savvy with technology. It kind of goes back to being that very green new person at a company. You know, I, sometimes sure. I, I already get stuck in some of my in some of my ways. But then learning when I understood the amount of money it took to get a customer in the door when I really understood the sales process. Um, because like I said before, sales interested me way more than marketing did. 
But when I understood that correlation between the dollar it took to get someone in the door and then keep them, um, that's when I really dug into, okay, how do you find a customer? Then how do you attach certain attributes to them and certain tags and naming conventions that really give you um, very detailed reporting um, that follows them through a sales process. And it's when I really saw the way that marketing was woven into every step of the sales process. Um, and, and, And I'll never forget, you know, really just being a salesperson and hearing, you know, a, a CMO actually really debate uh, a head of sales because the head of sales thought he had done a great job and, you know, had hit his sales number. And and this CMO just said, kind of what we were talking about a second ago, yep, yeah, I've got to go back out and get those people again if we've not figured out how to have, you know, retention programs and, you know, excellent customer service. And, and so to me, I've always viewed that cycle as a true circle. There's yep. no there's no beginning and end. Right. Um, you, you may start with acquiring a customer and it costs a certain amount and you lead them to the sales cycle and that costs a certain amount. But then, you know, customer service is just as important and um, and that ties it right back into a, another sales cycle. And it, it, it was, it honestly, it's just been years of seeing how that comes together. Yep. And, and, if, and if each of those leaders within those departments of any organization of any size can really work together and not view their department as more important than the other. I feel like there's oftentimes that rivalry between, you know, uh, the operational side of the sales and the marketing side that, that that's when, you know, you really see expense being cut and, um, and the quality of the person coming in the door as a customer and sticking around is just really fine tuned. And, um, it's sort of this like math equation for me that I just love kind of messing with. I love so, it. Yeah. I, I might need to come by the, the back house one day and get a yeah. lesson. <laughs> I uh, can show you how it works. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. I, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. like fascinated by it. What's a naming convention? You said naming convention. Yeah. So you want to get into this right now? <laughs> well, I just, I, I'm only going to ask one question. I, we could do a whole podcast on how to set this up. Yeah. That's my one. What's a naming yes. convention? Yeah. Um, so. So for instance, if you, let's say you've got a bunch of documents okay. on your your shared drive that you share with your CFO okay. and um, and you are trying to have, and this is just one example, yeah. your, your you know, monthly reconciliations in one folder yeah. so that you guys know where to go grab the latest one, make sure everything's like looking correct. Um, if you've not established a naming convention for that document, uh. um, that's it gets all, saved the same way. It like gets 10 saved times. the same way ten times. Ten different ways. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And a naming convention doesn't just go for one individual document. Um, the best naming conventions have hierarchy. Yep. So um, you are you always know where to find what it is that you need. Um, <laughs> and that doesn't go just for documents, but it goes for the whole way that I've set up my processes yep. and my platforms as well. So that let's just say Ashley, who is doing my artist outreach right now. Um, uh, you know, the goal is that she's not the only person doing that, that we bring on 10 more one day For or sure. somebody comes in and as manager, that training process and that onboarding is so much smoother and it's trainable. Yep. Um, and it's just easy to, 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 to do when you've really got something down with like a naming convention. <laughs> I'm actually glad I asked that question. I feel like that is the, 
the biggest thing that uh, small businesses in particular struggle with is naming, like literally naming conventions, how something's saved, mm-hmm. um, how how people find stuff mm-hmm. when new people come on board. I mean, we have 22 people like, where the hell do I find this document? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've got some I've, I've after doing it three or four times now, I definitely have found some things that like work yep. and, and click. So. That's awesome. There's podcasting, there's blogging, there's digital ads. What's like some low hanging fruit that's like the best way for you to reach your customer um, that might be transferable to people in other industries? Like what's the best way online to where you don't get lost in all the noise? That's a really good question. Email? So I do still think that email marketing is the highest converter that that you have. Um, but a lot of people will say, yeah, that's great if you've got a database <laughs> that yeah. it's worth marketing to, right? Right. Um, and so I feel like that comes, you know, sometimes at a, at a later phase. You know, I have found that finding experts and influencers um, within your industry is usually a, I'm going to say cheaper. It's not always free. It's not always cheap. Yeah. Um, but it's oftentimes cheaper than other types of marketing and um, usually has a brighter, uh, I'm sorry, a broader uh, reach. Yep. Um, and it comes with some, you know, gravitas behind it because they're an expert in that area. And so I have tried to kind of lean on, you know, in either individuals like that um, or or realizing how I can take reviews or positive quotes to, um, you know, further that outreach. I just think that we're inundated these days because of social media. With bad um, news. And- with bad news or, or, or even good news where you kind of asked, how do you weed yeah. through some of that noise? And so... Um, I think people are drawn towards things that have re- good reviews right. or come from somebody who's an expert. And so I think that that is, is really important f- sort of for any industry. And as, which, as much as I wish I could say that it was something that you kind of put in place and let run, yep. you know, really good marketing is looked at and analyzed and updated daily weekly you're always tinkering you're always tinkering i mean i i think that a website that is you know really well optimized and you're watching the search terms that are populating in google again there's not there's not a cost associated with that you're just optimizing the pages on your website or the media that's on your website to get higher rankings and to get um organic click through um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give you some things that I feel like you don't have to spend a ton of money right. on, but make a massive impact. Yep. And so realizing that those keywords and what people are searching for and looking for, that changes on for sure. a weekly basis. So even if you think you've nailed it, you know, once, um, you got to go back and continue to keep looking at it and 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 changing and refining it. So I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you know like what the main keywords are in Google when people are searching for you? Is it wedding registry? Is it yeah. not Pottery Barn wedding registry? <laughs> yeah. So one of the things um, that I did very early on was not only did we create a brand guideline document, um, but we I spent, I want to say, 10 to 15. And I, I've, I've got a fabulous 
digital marketing lead. It was one of the, the very first things that I did. Um, you know, I'm strategizing for her and then she's executing. And the we spent 10 days just refining keywords for the search engine pieces and as well as the different categories on my site. Um, and we look at it, we look at it weekly. Yeah. Um, so I meet with her um, uh, just via via phone, via Google Hangout every Monday for an hour and a half. And she gives me every marketing report that I have asked for that we've set in place. And that happens every Monday. Wow. Um, and, and so, yes, I'm looking at those keywords constantly. So we started getting uh, Google searches for the dowry and the dowry registry a couple months ago, which is very exciting. Yeah. Um, we are highly clicked through when it comes to glassware and barware, um, probably because that serves a bigger audience than just registry. Um, so that's been interesting to see. Um, and then we have a couple of artists who are um, are highly searchable. Um, they are in some major markets in the United States. And so um, when somebody goes to search for that artist oh, and wow. we're coming up as one of the, you know, one to three top um, sites. Um, but yeah, wedding gift registry is is definitely one of them. I have decided to not negatively search. So yeah. I'm not um, paying for, you know, Pottery Barn registry yet. I'm not right. doing any of that. I've just yeah. I've kind of opted against that at the moment until I get a little bigger. Oh, so that's what that's so it's called ne- what do you call negative keywords or whatever. So you would try and link to somebody searching for Pottery Barn or something like that. Correct. Oh, yep. Cool. Yep. So competitive keyword search is um, definitely a if it, if it's a cheaper keyword search and it's going to give you higher ranking, then it's yep. absolutely worth doing. Um, all, same thing with misspellings. So um, the dowry is D O W R Y, but everybody puts an E before the R. So that is a misspelled search term that I am, you know, putting out there. So um, are you going to show me your notes now? Look, look at your misspelling. I, spe- I misspelled it. You, you're, you, you have just proven. Oh boy. <laughs> the, the teaching I just gave. Oh boy. Yeah, that's so. Those are two other ways to yeah work on your keywords. <laughs> I asked your fiance to play tennis with me. Now he's gonna slam the ball in my face for spelling it wrong. At least we know now. My last kind of question, business, and then we'll kind of end it on some fun questions. Uh, there's an online retailer that you might have heard of called Amazon, right. and the number one kind of question for e-commerce businesses is sometimes, is are you Amazon proof or are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you think about Amazon? Do you yeah. care about them? Do they impact you? Do they not? Do they help you? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to answer it kind of in two parts. I think, sure, of course they care about Amazon. You know, why wouldn't I? They're worth watching. Um, everything from fulfillment and the way yeah. that they run their AWS and also, you know, are are my artists on their site? Or yeah. is that where people are going to register for? Um, but I also don't care. And that is because I spent eight months building a business plan and I know who my target audience is. And I know, um, uh, the niche target market that I'm going after. And Amazon may get pieces like that, uh, pieces of that. Like, of course they do for everybody. Um, but I think that that, that, brings us up a really good point is that in starting a business, one of the, I think one of the hardest and also one of the easiest things to fall into um, is continual shifting and not having a clear focus and um, vision of where you're going. And it's easy early on because there are so many things flying your way. 
And so if you have not laid out <laughs> who your comp- your true competition is and the way that you're combating that competition and you don't know who your customers are, you're going to get washed aside. Um, and so the reason why Amazon is not that for me is that the niche group that I am going after is still a large piece of the market share and will you know, get tons of revenue just if I can get a percentage of that right. um, is not competing against that Amazon piece. Right. Um, and so I, I don't view them as a, um, as a, as a threat in that nature. Um, which kind of brings me to the, the second piece is that last week, the knot announced that they are launching a wedding registry, um, to combat Zola, which has been the latest technology advancement in the wedding gift giving industry in the last couple of years. And I had one of the girls on my team shoot me an email and said, well, how are we combating this? You know, wait, what? the knot is, you know, creating a wedding gift registry. And I let her know, I'm like, this actually just proves my point that there's revenue to be had yep. in this industry. Um, the knot would not spend this time or the amount of hours it would take to launch this if there wasn't something there. Yep. Um, and there's obviously enough piece of the pie for you know that to to happen for a bunch of people. So I see competition as being a healthy and a good thing. Yeah. But yeah, keep you on your toes. <laughs> I love it. And and we'll end it on that. How how big is uh, your addressable market? Like, what size of the pie do you need? Yeah. So right now, I'm just marketing in the Texas market. Okay. And um, so that is that brings me. There's 91,000 engaged couples in the state of Texas, which is insane. And I guess I should kind of wow. caveat that that I don't know if COVID is totally messed with that number yeah. or not, but that's where it was. Yeah. Um, and so that it's like a $23 million, you know, TAM here. Yeah. Um, but my goal is not to just stay in Texas. Right. Um, and, and technically anyone can actually we had a bride this weekend who had a wedding and she was in Michigan. Yeah. Um, and so already it's outside of Texas. I'm just not spending any money out there. Right. Um, and so I think I said this kind of early on. I mean, the total addressable market for the wedding gift giving industry is 19 billion. And, you know, what I'm looking at now is just a sliver of a fraction of that, you know, it's, yep. and I'm okay with it just being a sliver and a fraction That's of that. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> I think the businesses that do the best are the ones that start trying to get a sliver of it and they're not so focused on getting all of it. You, you make a lot of mistakes when you try and do everything and get yeah. so big and. Well, I'm really glad that you uh, you had that aha moment that uh, you actually were an entrepreneur um, <laughs> because it's been awesome to hear this. And just on the marketing and sales, I'm serious. Uh, we've had 70 guests and uh, I'm, I'm definitely most inspired by your marketing and kind of sales knowledge. Thank you. I, I think I might take a lesson. I love marketing and, and sales, but I, I'm, I've never been great at digital. I've always hired sure. it out. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, clear. and I've got real estate in the background, so come over All and right. we'll, we'll hammer it out. We'll do it. We'll go play tennis after. <laughs> as long as you don't beat me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to bring it home with like four or five just kind of fun personal questions, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. This has been awesome. I think there's a lot of people that were probably in your shoes that uh, are on the fence about starting something or have that journal with that idea. Uh, is there just anything, maybe some advice you would give them that maybe you would nudge them forward? Oh man, I was hoping you'd say that wouldn't nudge them forward. Or wouldn't. Or wouldn't. <laughs> don't do it. Um like my answer to that question is just do it. Like, yeah. Don't dwell on it too long. Just right. you gotta jump into the fire and yeah. get going. And that well that that proves me that we're not the same personality types. I'm yeah. definitely not the just do it. Yeah, no, I am. For better or worse. <laughs> 
Yeah. You know, I, I honestly like my answer to that has really normally been like it's n- it's not for everybody. Right. So I actually kind of give the opposite where I, love um, I think that like we've talked about all these platforms and like how easy it is for everybody to go do it. Yep. And and those platforms are there to make money and they want everybody to go do it. Sure. <laughs> they want them to just do it. Yeah. Um, but even with all those tools, there are soft skills and there are learned things that um, I think take time to acquire. And so um, I think you need to have those in place first before you jump off the ledge and just do it. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, a- anyone can. I just think those need to be in place first is, For sure. is sort of my ad- advice on that. <laughs> Whew. I just jumped right in. <laughs> Good for you. And I made a million I, mistakes that had I yeah. just taken some time and gotten those skills, I probably wouldn't. But Sure. But um, I tell my team all the time, like, don't let perfection stop you from for moving sure. forward. Yep. So if, if you want, I mean, that's my. That's the answer right yeah, there. I mean, the answer to, I mean, if if I waited for perfection, we, you know, there, I wouldn't have a site. For sure. I mean, yeah. So that's, um, I think that action is way more important than perfection. For sure. Do you have a morning routine? or something that gets you kind of going every day? Um, Coffee, for sure. I am definitely a a coffee intake person. Um, And then I walk my two dogs around the block. I love it. (laughs) What kind of dogs? Um, So I've got a four-year-old Shih Tzu, and then I've got a nine-month-old wired-haired Griffon. And so I'm sure we look like a motley crew walking around the block, but it clears my head before I get back in the house. What's the best advice you've ever received? Besides, like, don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah. Um, I think people who choose to do things like what you have done, what I have done, um, it's easy to come down on yourself yep. um, every day. And, and I'm thinking of like, you know, who told me that? And I don't think I took it to heart right away. Right. Um, or I just sort of forgot because on the hard days, um, and there's a lot of those. Yep. I just can get really, yeah. really, uh, you know, h- hard on myself. And so it's just, um, I was told that Rome wasn't built in a day. It wasn't. So it takes some time. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? <laughs> we talked about this last week with Johnny. You were uh, having a rough week or wasn't your best week. And I said, dude, the journey is like this yeah. to the top. It's not a straight right. line and to the right. Yeah. Yeah. Ups and downs. Um, What's the best book you've ever read? Oh, you're gonna make me pick one. Oh, you could you can give lots. We can talk. We, we have no. Uh, there's no time limit here. Man, oh, that one. I wish I could have taken some time to really think on. Maybe like a personal so, book or a business book. Yeah. Um. So mm-hmm. the best sales book that. Um, this is actually pretty funny because I still hand this sales book out to like everybody who walks through the door who. Um, so, so on the side, I somehow have become the girl who helps people with their resumes. Okay. And so I, and I have no idea where this happened. Um, <laughs> but, but as a side gig, I seem to always be, be editing and helping people with their resume and kind of teeing them up for job interviews. And, um, and if somebody is going into the sales route, soft selling in a hard world is really the only sales book I ever make anyone in sales read. Um, and I probably earmarked and underlined and wrote all over it. Yep. And so, um, yeah, that it, it, it's, it's this tiny little book. Like, I almost like you like put it in your back pocket, which makes it sound like it's not legit. Yep. Um, but it's I think it's really good. So. I'm going to order it. <laughs> okay. 
I'm like, I just wrote Actually, it down. Don't. I'll bring you one because I keep stacks in my house. Deal. So. <laughs> I'll come by, check out the office, there you go. learn sales marketing, and I'll get the book. There you go. If people want to reach you or the dowry, how can they contact you or your business? Absolutely. Um, so if they want to contact me, I'm going to give out my, my personal here. Um, but it's Megan at okay. MeganHodges.org. Okay. That's M-E-G-A-N. Um, and then if they want to go to the business, then it's the dowry with no with E. With no E. Dot co. Right dot co. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Megan, thank you so much for joining me today. This was an awesome conversation. You're welcome. I really, really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.